Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Lant. I'm your host, James Lanthian. And my guest today is a high school teacher and a creator, Mr. Shelton Hawkins. Thank you for joining me. Nah, man. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, um, I got we got introduced to a good friend of mine, uh, Shane Bell, and he told me, hey, man, you got to talk to one of my friends, Shelton. I said, all right, I'm going to make sure I get him on there. So appreciate another plug, Shane. Nah, nah, SB's a good dude, man. And I don't know, we was talking, uh, me and my brother Devin was talking on live a few weeks back about uh, how, like, my mom actually brought SB first CD home, and she let me hear it, and she was like, you worry about your friends? This is the guy you need to be trying to sign, so... <laughs> So I think it was like 2003, 2004, I was trying to sign SB to a record label. <laughs> I don't yeah, know you, what I was minute, you, Let me back up. You said your mom's introduced you to him? Yeah, my mom's brought the CD home. Like, she was playing in the car, and I was mad because she would never play my friend's music in the car. She was playing <laughs> SB's first CD, the Mary Mildred, in the car. So, yeah. Wow, that's a that's a very <laughs> a very interesting connect. Yeah, yeah. So that's how we, and then I went to the studio that day and I was like, yo, this dude is nice. And ever since then, we've just been cool. So you had a record label at the time? I did. I did. So, and this is early 2000. So at the time, Rockefeller was everything. So we literally took Jay-Z's blueprint and thought we was like Rockefeller. So it was called First Screen Records. It was myself and three other dudes who all played basketball. And then we was signing artists. We opened up a Pastor Troy, Master P. <laughs> we had uh, two really huge mixtapes where, where we live at and everything like that. We was on our way. But, you know, that's when the time where everybody was, like, kind of doing music, kind of doing mixtapes and stuff like that. Mm. Do you, so let me ask yeah. you, did you – yep. let's say you – if you came, if you guys had came along this t- around this time with the internet and social media, do you mm. think it would have been a little easier for you? Yeah, but even back then, because it was like 2000, I want to say 2004, 2005, we kind of, the internet was just starting to really just first start to kind of be what it is. But man, we was filming our own videos. We was filming our studio session. At the time, we was, we was buying fake Jacob watches and giving them to the artists <laughs> that we signed with some. <laughs> So when you signed with First Game Record, we gave you a chain and a, and a Jacob watch. I was playing like, at the time I had just got done playing college basketball. No, I still was playing college basketball. So I was getting my stipend check every month, which was like, I think like $1,300 a month. So I was like, all right, my rent is $300 a month. I still got $1,000. So I, I, that $1,000 was our studio money. It was money for me to sign artists and pay for beats or whatever type of stuff we was doing. So I really thought I was Dame Dash, like for real. <laughs> Hey man, look, it's it all yeah. starts with a dream. I mean, yeah. nobody gonna believe yeah, in your vision if you don't. So that's right, that's right. And you know, Dane was always one of those types. Like, I feel like he get a like a bad rep, but Dane was always like one of those types who was just like, all right, I think my my homies is dope. I'm a grind for it. And I always kind of been that same type of type of person that if I believe in somebody, I'm gonna try my best to make sure you know I can help out. So what eventually happened? Did you just fold it or <clears throat> no? Um, it's crazy because we actually had like some really, really big opportunities. But uh, one of the artists on a label who at the time was playing basketball for West Virginia hurt his knee and then he had to get knee surgery. And then at the time uh, he got addicted to pain pills. And at the time we was young, man, we was 20, 20 years old college. We, sophomore injury. we didn't understand what pain pills was back then, like Percocets and all those. Like, but we didn't know it was like a problem. Mm-hmm. And he was our Jay-Z. So, you know, he, 
and, it, and we didn't understand addiction. We thought only like addiction was like, all right, crack and all that type of stuff. We didn't understand like people could be addicted to pain pills and, and with all that bro. So we had just got like a $10,000 investment and he just couldn't shake it. And then we didn't want to take people money in and not have the actual end product. So we just kind of stopped just doing it, man. It just kind of fizzled out. We actually moved to, uh, to, to I, went to, I was going to school in Texas. So they ended up coming to stay with me. Did a song with Bun B. Uh, we like man, we had like some crazy features and everything. Just, just kind of just fizzled out. So, mm. but then the last person we signed, uh, his name was T Cole. You should look him up, man. He wrote records for Rihanna, for Prince Brown. And we signed him when he was 13 years old. He went on, uh, came stay with me for two weeks. My homeboy was visiting from L.A. Took him to L.A. and now he's always like he does a lot of stuff with Romeo, Bow Wow, like all that type of stuff. But yeah. Now, with everything you're doing, is that something you still interested in, or you feel like that's in the past and you didn't move nah, on from Nah, nah, nah. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm a, a overall just creator. So, for me, it's always like a Devin's album cover up until this last one. I did the design or came up with the concept for the album covers. Still work on a lot of the projects, even with SB stuff. Like, you know, they usually send me some stuff. Or I, I think I made a couple of beats for SB. <laughs> you got you to tell him to send you over some of the tracks and stuff I sent. So, Okay. I still do music, but not as much as as I used to do it. Oh, so you actually produce? I have, yeah. So I was pretty good with the Triton, the MPC, and everything like that. So I did want to a little bit. How often would you say you, you do something? Oh, no, now it's not. Only time I might do something is when, when Devin's like working on a project or, or SB hits me when they're working on a project. So it's just rare that I work, I, you know, do anything with music. But on that side, like, so now I do more, like, the visual part of it. Like, all right, what, what should we be doing for the video? Or I do more of the styling, like, making sure they, they're wearing the right stuff and stuff like that. Okay. Oh, so you, you actually get behind the styling and the clothes they pick yeah, all that? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, the photo shoot. I make sure everything, like, I have to send you uh, Devin's last album before the, this album, but styling the, the whole uh, a blank camera should be illegal. Yeah, we okay. came up with that concept and everything like that. Yeah, so yeah, I yeah. love that. That album cover was nice, man. Yeah, I so really and like I, that one a lot. And, and it's crazy. Once I send you the reference, you're gonna be like, "Oh man, that's so crazy!" Because we found like this old vintage 1978 uh, record player, and the lady on the cover had on an all white, but the background had like graffiti and stuff on it. So then we flipped that and put the artwork on his outfit, and then everything else was all white. So, and that's how we came up with the cover. Would you say that's where your biggest passion is? Is just like creating? Uh yeah. I think for me is I'm competitive. So I always need something to kind of like challenge me or kind of like I need to be working towards something. Or I need to be trying to prove something that's I don't know. I just have that I hate to lose. <laughs> and I always <laughs> have to try to like be working like, all right. So if somebody says you can't do this, I'm like, all right, bet I'm about to show you not only can I do it, but we actually gonna be really good at it. So I've always been like that. Wow. And then we talked we talked right before we started, and you mm. were explaining to me about the basketball course that you designed, mm. which was mm. unreal to me. I, you got to um, talk about that. So in 2004, my cousin passed away on a basketball court in Maryland where we live at Sorry to hear. Sorry to hear about your cousin. Nah, man. And, it, and it's crazy. It was because we was all out the basketball court. He dumped the basketball, and I, he celebrated. He What we thought, he fell and hit his head, but he just had an enlarged heart. But we didn't know at the time. We thought it was just because, like, the court we was playing on was so, it was so beat up and so bad. Mm. So um, 
I wrote a, I still got a letter too. I wrote a letter to Nike. Nike was going to pay for them to come in and re, refurbish the court, redo the court and everything. The town we live in was like, nah, man, it's not a good idea. We don't want people to be hanging out. So basically they were saying like, look, we don't want black people to be hanging out the basketball courts anyway. So we know we're going to leave the basketball courts like how it is. Mm. So I just kept, I just kept pressing on and pushing on. And then uh, I moved to Barcelona, Spain in 2012. And I came back home and I was noticing nobody was playing outdoor basketball like where I live in. I'm like, man, like overseas, everybody plays outdoor basketball. When I came back, I was like, man, nobody's not playing. So I picked up the idea again. Um, and I reached out with a lady who works at the board where I live at. She loved the idea. We went on to raise $80,000. <laughs> now we did four basketball courts. Um, we had an event for the first 400 people at outdoor basketball. It was like our own version of Rucker. We had a huge game. And it, was, it was dope. I designed the jerseys. I designed the basketball. I designed the courts. <laughs> so, wow. yeah. Yeah. So so the project is called Playing Color because basketball, to me, is is one of those type of sports where it's for everybody. It's not only for black people, white people, people of color. It's for everybody. Um, and and it's, even with my time overseas, you could be somewhere and not be able to speak the language, but you can go to the basketball court and you can make friends. So that's the same thing we've just been trying to do with the playing color projects and the playing color courts. So you you play ball overseas? I no. So when I went overseas, I worked with Nike to do uh, like their youth basketball development league. So we would go around to like all these amazing places from like Paris, London, Rome, Milan. So every two or three weeks, we would go somewhere and do like a youth clinic basketball camp for free for the kids. So I did that for six months and then ended up coming home. Wow, how'd you get how'd you get involved with that project? <laughs> so, uh, so I was living in Houston at the time. I was coaching basketball. I had just got coach of the year in Houston. I was doing, we was doing really good. My one of my good friends was moving to Barcelona, and at the time, I was like, man, like I kind of I wanted to do something different. He was like, yo, let's just move to Barcelona. I was like, all right. <laughs> I ain't had no job, but. <laughs> My high school coach is, uh, I mean, he, my high school coach, Coach Kevin Durant, he's like probably one of the Nike's biggest high school coaches at the time. So he was like, all right, when you go over there, I can plug you in. So he kind of just plugged me in with the Nike people over there because Nike at the time had, a, I think they might still have one of the headquarters over in Europe and Barcelona. So they just plugged me in. They was like, all right, what are you good at? And I told them I was good at basketball. They was like, all right, then you can do this for a couple of weeks. And so I did that for six months. Wow. Yeah. How would you how would you explain the difference with basketball in Europe or over, anywhere overseas yeah. as mm-hmm. opposed to basketball in America? That's a great question. Um, to me, basketball overseas is it teaches skill and basketball in America teaches position. So if you're in Europe and you're seven feet, they're not going to be like, oh, you have to play the post. They're going to teach you all the skills to be able to play basketball. In America, if you're seven feet, they're like, oh, you got to play center. So here we teach position. And overseas, they teach skill. And to me, that's a huge difference because, like, even the last five to six years, the teams who've been really good have been playing positionless basketball. You look at Golden State, nobody really has a position because you think Draymond Green is, is a basketball player. You're not thinking he's a center, but you just put him on the floor. It's positionless basketball. And that's how the European game is. It's more uh, free-flowing. The ball moves a lot quicker and stuff like that. So, to me, that's, like, the biggest difference is they teach skill, and over here we teach position. So would you, would you, uh, you know how people say, oh, the, the Americans are tougher and the European players softer. Did you, did you notice that or? It is. It, just because over there it's a little bit different. I don't want to say soft. Their game is, again, they just more skilled. You, you can, you can say over here the guys are probably tougher, but you can say over there the guys are more skilled. You can look at it like 
Luca, who's his second year in the NBA, he's probably one of the best players because he was so skilled, so young, because they didn't say, all right, you six seven, you have to play small forward or whatever the case. Or or if you six seven here, they might put you at power forward. Or whatever they say, okay, we're gonna put teach you the skills of basketball and whatever type of player you be, you end up being. He ended up being one of the best point guards in the nation. So to me, I think guys are a little bit softer, but they're you know, it's just different type of basketball. That's the same thing you could say for somebody like New Yorkers. I think New York outdoor basketball probably plays harder than anywhere else. But you look at California guys who would play finesse basketball are still really skilled too. So Yeah. True. Yeah. How how has that did that moving overseas spending that time six six months overseas, has that any way helped you being being a creator? Not even I just feel like when I left I was like in a weird spot. So I went to Barcelona. I literally lived two miles from the beach and I lived with the people who uh, my host family was kind of like our version of Ben and Jerry. So over there, they had like the biggest manufacturer ice cream company in Spain. So every meal would be something with ice cream. And they didn't, I don't know, like, <laughs> which, literally we would wake up in the morning, it would be like waffles, bacon, and then some type of ice cream. You'd be like, man, wow. then for lunch, it'd be like some type of, and in Spain, they have this thing where it's called fiesta. So every day from two to five, everybody's off work because that's the time you're supposed to spend with your family. Mm. Like, you know what I'm saying? So, so everybody gets to leave work and then you get to come home and spend time with your family. And then you go back to work from six to eight or from six to nine, stuff like that. So it's actually really dope. But I feel like Spain actually made me or helped me become a better person. Like when I came back to America, like my mindset was different. Like my energy was different. And just my appreciation for like traveling and seeing the world and not staying out. Like, because in Maryland, like most people live in Maryland, stay in Maryland. They don't actually get a chance to see like, Rome or Paris. I've been in Paris five times. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, so like you once you get to see the world, you get to see how different people live. I think it kind of helps. I don't know. I just think and for me, like traveling is really important for my creativity. So I try to travel a lot. Well, before before everything now, but before <laughs> I, I, I would travel a lot. I would at least try to go out out the country two or three times a year. Now you you you're in the classroom now, you work mm-hmm. at a school. Um What's that experience like being in the classroom? It actually keeps me young. It keeps me excited because the kids are so like, I don't, and my school is like a cool school. Like it's just over us five stories. We have like the huge dome where you can show the movies, the 360 movies and stuff on our school. Our school is like probably one of the best schools in Maryland. And man, the kids we have are really good. It keeps me young. I teach art, so I don't have like one of those classes where I'm stressed out. My principal does a great job of allowing me to be me. So like, we did like a sneaker project. We designed sneakers. We sent the Reebok. Reebok whole team called my kids on FaceTime. They looked, they talked about the product. So just doing cool stuff like I use social media in my classroom. You know, like uh, so like that's important. So as a matter of fact, we just did um for our kids. My principal was like, all right, we need something kind of cool for our kids. I was like, all right, I want to redo a different world for our intro. He was like, all right, bet. So we redid the show, uh, a different world. Okay. Uh, the intro for like you know just little cool stuff like that this year for uh black history month man for my students we did a short film which was seven minutes which was like we actually was uh, well before the school year was over we was on our way to being like three or four film festivals so wow cool little projects like that man yeah it sounds like this school gives the students the opportunity and the space to create it does it does so what we have our school is on uh I don't know how it is in, in California, but out here we have uh, 
A day and B day. So and I, we do block schedule. So the kids are only in school, I mean, only in class for four classes a day. But in, so they go to two classes, then they get a break. So in between the break, we call it activity period. So for that hour and 10 minutes, you can kind of get like a break from your regular schoolwork. So you can go to the gym, you can play basketball, you can go swimming, we got a swimming pool in our gym. If you in the movies, if you want to play video games, we have all that. So each classroom has a different thing for you to maybe go do. And a couple of years ago, um, so you do it every day. So one day for my class, it was uh, Hype Beast. We talk about Hype Beast Radio. Mm-hmm. Then the next day was a podcast. Then the next day was like my own little version of Sports Center with like these two kids from my class, which was really dope. So every day it was allowing me to baby do something different, but also to baby do the kids baby uh, do something different for an hour out of the day. Man, it sounds like a great school. They um, they they provided some great opportunities, but now, like you mentioned we're in the middle of the COVID crisis. So how has that impacted you and you being a teacher? Man, it's actually two things. One, I was about to have probably like the biggest year of my life as far as like the projects I was working on. I was on my way to Houston to do the McDonald's All-American Basketball Court. We was doing that. Like I was, (laughs) was on my way to do some really big things. And then, um, just missing my kids, not be able to see my kids, even though we have class every day, but it's not like the same where you can go to the school and cut up with the kids and kind of enjoy being around that. And, and I feel bad for some of my kids because our area got hit kind of hard with the COVID. Um, it's like one of the, the hot spots in Maryland. So, you know, a lot of those kids are dealing with that stuff at home. And then you got to think like in underprivileged, you know, schools and areas like kids, some kids like need to get away. School is their escape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, so, we got to deal with that or some kids can't have three meals a day or whatever the case may be. So school lunch and school breakfast was, was important to some of my kids. So it's been tough. Um, I don't know how to, what even what to do going forward, because even when you come out of COVID, say if it's be okay in, in August, how do you, what about public transportation? How do kids don't ride a bus when it's 50 kids on a bus or 40 kids on a bus? Most classrooms got 25 kids. So how are you going to social distance with 25 kids? Or what if you gonna say, all right, every kid got to wear a mask, but how long do they wear the mask? Like, so it's gonna be like, how do you approach a new school? Yeah, they. I've been reading articles and stories. They were talking about doing like staggered days, with mm. like half were going like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. The other half were going Tuesday, Thursdays, and they will alternate. What do you yeah, think about that? I, well, I think you gotta be creative. I think you gotta like re reinvent the wheel at least for two years until we can get like a vaccine that we know works. But you're gonna have to say, all right. Even still, even if you stagger it, you're still gonna have kids. I mean, how you gonna? What about lunch <laughs> in the mm-hmm. cafeteria? Yeah. And my school's a big school. It got three thousand students. So three <laughs> thousand Yeah. So how many so, how many t- students to a class? Uh, it's like 25, between 25 and 30 kids a class. It's five stories. So, you know, like, yeah, it's a big school, man. So, but that's a lot of people to one class though. Yeah. (laughs) And that's small. Like in Baltimore city, you got 37 to 40 kids in a class. So yeah. Yeah. At public school. Yeah. 37. Yeah. 37 to 40. Some schools, some classes be having, especially like electives, because I, I, I teach electives, so like an art class, a music class, a PE class, those classes are going to have your high numbers. So you're going to have 35 to 40 kids if you're in a big public school. 
Okay, well, wait a minute. We got back up. So is it so the classes are the the classes that that's typically like 37 to 40. Mm-hmm. Are these just electives or are we talking like math, science classes as well? No, I, I think it's more so elective classes because everybody tries to take those classes. Now with a math class, every like algebra one, we have so many different algebra teachers and stuff like that. I think it's higher numbers for the most part saying like your elective classes. But still, I mean, your your math, your algebra one, you probably still gonna have twenty six to thirty kids in the class. Man, that's a lot. Freshman English, because everybody like freshman English probably have like another class that has high numbers. So, yeah, man. If you if I, you if you had your way, what 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 number would you consider a good number student to teacher ratio? Mm, see, for me, uh, that's a good question. So. Early on in my my high high school career, I went to a public school, and I felt like I didn't really understand education until I actually went to a private school when I had, like, smaller classrooms, one-on-one teachers. So I went to a private school that had nuns as my teachers, but it was only seven kids in class. So then I didn't feel ashamed if I didn't understand something where I was in public school with all my friends. It was 30 of us in a class. You ain't want to raise your hand. You just want to cut up with your friends. So I actually think the classrooms that have smaller numbers is actually better because you really can help a student who's struggling. When you got 30 kids in a class, it's kind of hard because out of those 30, 26 of them might, you know, 24 of them might understand everything. And then you got the four that might not. And he's like, all right, how do you kind of balance off everything? So small numbers always feel like they're better. I'm trying to, I'm really trying to remember <laughs> like how many people was in my class. Cause I so at the high school I went to, um, we, our graduating class was like 570. That's a lot. Yeah. The That's overall a, yeah. student body was like 20. We had like 2,500 students at my school. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you probably, you probably was in the 24 to 30 kids per class. Yeah. And back then it probably ain't feel like a lot, but now like with this, this COVID virus, like it's just, you think about everything different. You think about going to a concert, <laughs> you think about like something simple as like being in a grocery store. Too many people in a grocery store. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's going. It's I'm I'm really interested to see like what's going to happen with sports and yeah, like how do you how do you change everything that we are so used and you think about America really a lot of stuff that we do is based on crowds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and lots of them too. Yeah, yeah, a lot of stuff that we from you got think music. If you are, if you are artist, how are you gonna be able to tour? Hmm. It's, you think it's, about it. it's fascinating to me. It's mm. college really campus, know, like man. college kids. If hey, you in college, if you're a college professor, college college kids have more kids in the classroom than high school teachers. So how are you gonna teach college classes? <laughs> See the thing about college, I guess I guess with college, it almost feels like it'll be okay for everything to convert over to to um distance learning. Yeah. I think I think it'd be easier for college because they because they already have something in place, you know. True, but you gotta think. All right, so if you paying thirty five thousand dollars a year <laughs> to go to school, <laughs> to go to school, <laughs> and you only can talk to your teacher through email. Yeah, that that. And your te- <laughs> <laughs> it's, now see, it's different when you like you know people do online school and stuff like that, which I understand, but it's different like. You can't. I feel like you can't really benefit if you had an HBCU and you only doing online. Like, I don't know. I, that's just. 
I just feel like you're being robbed of what college is supposed to feel like. Where'd you go to college? So I went to college at uh, Midwestern State in Texas. So I, tra- I, went to, I went to North Texas first, transferred, and then I finished my career at uh, Midwestern State, in, uh, right outside of Dallas, Texas. I actually heard of they. I, I think they've been to the tournament fairly recently. Yeah, yeah, okay. really good. Yeah, really good. That's what I, I do it. Okay, <laughs> I, I heard of school. I, I was like two years too early when I left. The next four years, they won conference championship. And so every time I used to go back, they used to be having rings. I'm like, dang, I should be red. If I'd have red traded one year, I'd have left with a ring. But two years too early. Now you didn't go to an HBCU though, right? Nope, I didn't. I wish I wish I'd have would have though. Like. So when HBCUs was recruiting me in, in school, I was like, man, I'm not going. They don't have no, they don't have no money. They're getting one or two pairs of shoes. I was, I was so caught up in, all right, this is what college is supposed to feel like instead of like really understand what an HBCU actually really is. And by me working at HBCU for three years, I understood like how important that the heritage is or those years of like, you know what I'm saying? Like what it really means to be an alpha or Martin Luther King being an alpha, like when we were in my school, like we ain't had no fraternity. We had like a couple of fraternities, but it wasn't like like an HBCU party. <laughs> so, but you left this. You 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 had to leave the state. So, was you nervous about going to Texas? No, because I man, I played travel ball my whole life, so I was always I had been there pretty much every state before I had got to college anyway. So, no, I wasn't nervous at all. Would you end up getting? Would you communication. have a degree? Yeah. What is it? Communi- communication. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm a mass comm major. So at the time, I was like, oh, man, I'm about to be on the radio, or maybe I'm going to do some journaling and stuff. But then, uh, and then my mind was in art. So that's how I baby teach art. Do you, um, well, now, because we because social media is so, so prevalent in our lives, um, mm-hmm. do you find yourself being more masterful because you have a degree? And communications? No, I, I just think like, man, I just feel like if you just put a little bit of time and, and effort in it, uh, social media, I feel like it's so much information out there to baby that people be like, how you, how do you do your videos so cool? I said, I look at YouTube, and then I said, all right, I got an iPhone, <laughs> iPhone 11. Like you think about it, like right now we're on a Zoom call or whatever, like you like you can like a background whatever the case may be if you just put a little bit of time into it then you pretty much can do anything i wish i had if i was in college right now i'd have been way better because you man, you can pretty much do anything from your phone if you got the internet you can do anything so are you what what type of crew what's type of um let me back up what type of creative projects are you doing now that you're currently working on Man, so right now I have something with Puma uh, that should be happening pretty soon. A basketball court with them that if we ever get to go back outside and kind of maybe to finish that up, <laughs> that should be September. Um, it's a brand from New York. It's two twins called Dan and Ricky. We did something, a collab project with Legos, um, the Lego, like the little toy Legos. We did some okay. basketball with those. Um, so for me, I've been really just trying to focus on doing stuff with bigger brands in uh, 2020. Um, but since we've been home, I've been kind of like, all right, it was my daughter's birthday, so I did a cool video for that. Like, I made some merch T-shirts for her birthday. So just trying to, like, oh, matter of fact, I'm going to give you a gem that nobody knows. So we just printed 200 free T-shirts that we're going to give away to essential workers in Maryland. Okay. So well, all we're going to do is ask people, like, hey, if you know essential worker, like, if you're a mailman, comes to your neighborhood, he speaks every time, 
just send us a video or a letter like, all right, yo, Joe, my mailman does a great job. I think you should get a free T-shirt. So we just raised $1,000 to be able to print the T-shirts. The baby passed those out for free. So I'm excited about that project. Wow, congratulations, man. Man, I appreciate it, man. appreciate it. And that was just one day just being bored, like, no, what can I do? I was like, all right, I'm just going to draw the T-shirts. So I just designed a T-shirt and reached out to a couple of people. And they was like, oh, yeah, we're sitting 500. We're sending you at 600. And then end up being what it is. The the poop, the deals that you struck with Puma and the other mm-hmm. one, um, Legos. Mm-hmm. Do you find do you find these people yourself? Do they find you? How how did these deals come about? I, I do a lot of social 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 media fishing, what they call it. Um, so I used to try to position myself with the person who's not in charge, but the person who makes the most moves at a company. And mm-hmm. I follow them on Instagram and, and like a couple of their photos, try to get some engagement. And then I usually pitch them my idea, like, hey, what do you think about this? Or I think it'd be cool if we do X, Y, and Z. And then that's what usually happens. And the Puma deal was a little bit different just because of Emery Jones, um, who's from- Jay-Z guy? Huh? The guy with Jay-Z? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so he's from my area. Um, The court we're supposed to be doing is is from his his area. So that's one of the things that, you know, we've been working on. Wow. That's big, man. That's big. And people, you know, it takes years. Like we pitched the idea to him uh, last year, and we still haven't like finalized everything. But it's still like a project that we was like, all right, once we baby go back outside, let's make it happen. So, what are you looking forward besides those deals? Is there anything that you haven't done that you mm-hmm. really want to get your foot into? Um. Yeah, I actually think I really want to design a sneaker. Like, uh, 2019, I had the opportunity to go to Nike. And I wasn't prepared um, just because I didn't know, like, the vocabulary and the design terms. When you go to those big corporations, I thought it was going to be like, all right, I'm going to show y'all some sketches. These are ideas I have. And y'all going to love me. Nah, it was, I thought it was only going to be, like, three people in the room. I go in and join 12 people at this long table. And they was like, all right, show us your pitch deck. I'm like, what's that? Like, so I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't prepared. Like, um, but, you know, I still... But in hindsight, and then going back to this year, me and Devin Beck, who you had on your show, we actually got invited to under our campus, and we was totally prepared. I had the pitch decks ready before they came asked. We actually built the shoe. We had, like, a model of the shoe ready and everything like that. So that one lesson, like, all right, I was not prepared when I was at Nike, but when I went to Unknown, I was just, like, totally prepared. So in the oh, next so you year, actually, definitely- you actually design shoes? I, actually, I mean, I told you, I try to do a little bit of everything. Hey, I, you know what? You did a lot to me. <laughs> yeah, no, nah, man. I just, I just, for me, I just, I don't know. I, I kind of like chase opportunities. And I try to, like, pride myself on delivering and making sure that I deliver a really good product and set a standard for myself and be like, all right, I don't care how much it costs. I'm not going to change my idea because of money. I'm just going to try to figure out how to get it done. And, and that's what I usually do. Is that something you can see doing for yourself, like your own brand of shoe? No, because it's so hard to get a really, man, it's, it's hard, man. I really, like, do, uh, and, and it, that's what, just the period that I'm in my life. I don't think I'm going to be a shoe designer forever. Next year might be something totally different, but I think collaboration with brands is, is actually better because they already have a core following. So they already have an audience. So when you do a collab with them, you get an opportunity to bring your, your audience to them, and you get an opportunity for the audience to come with you. So for me, I think it's collaboration is is really the move. Man, you just talking to you, man, it's been like really inspirational to see a brother like doing so much, 
just like putting his hands in so many things like traveling yeah. and just, you know, being a, being an educator. So I definitely want to commend you and thank you for taking the time to do the podcast, man. I truly appreciate it. No, nah, man, I appreciate it, man. If you listen, I, my last words, if you do get a chance to travel, you definitely should because travel open your eyes to, to what life could really be. And like, you know, like, because when you live in an area, you think like, that's what the world looks like. But then you actually go to these places. When you get to see the Mona Lisa in, in person, you see how little, man, the Mona Lisa is like an eight by 11. It's like a <laughs> tiny thing. For like, and, but you like you hear people talk about how beautiful it, what it is. and uh, But when you see it in your, in your, you know, when you see it in person, you be like, oh man, it's incredible. Oh, wait a minute, back up. You said eight and a half by 11. Yo, the Mona Lisa is like regular, like almost like a little bit bigger than a piece of paper. What maybe it's a maybe a little it's it's tiny, like maybe eleven by fourteen, but it's no bigger than that. It's tiny. Tiny. <laughs> and then it's roped on <laughs> you can like see it from like five feet by it's like but like just seeing like you know like just little stuff like that you read about in, in, in books and then you get the opportunity to baby go see or or like when I did my time with USA basketball when I was around LeBron James every day or a coach, like just those type of lessons that you don't get, man. I tell you what, before we go, if if they if if somebody said, okay, show, I got I got a ticket to anywhere, I can go to one mm. place. Where would you say and why? You have you have to. It depends. <laughs> how how real you want me to be? Real as you can be. <laughs> I, I I really feel like Barcelona is really one of the best places to go, just because the food there, the people, the beach. The shop it has it literally has everything and like when I was there I didn't see no police officers like none like no crime no none of that type of stuff it was just that if you get a chance to go to Barcelona I'm telling you or you ever talk to somebody that been in Barcelona I bet they gonna say that's the best place they ever been and I didn't been there everywhere from Paris New York L A London Milan you name it everywhere except for Africa Africa's the only place Africa and Tokyo are the two places on my bucket list that I haven't been to and Tokyo we were supposed to go this year for the Olympics but the coronavirus kind of pushed all that back too. So, I'm sure you're gonna get there. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, I'm definitely going. So, well, before again, we end the interview, you gotta tell the people how they can follow you. Oh man, so um, you can definitely can follow me on Instagram. I probably do a lot of posting. Sorry in advance. Um, it's Coach Hawkins at UMES or Coach Hawkins UMES, and people be always like Coach Hawkins UMES, <laughs> but it's Coach Hawkins UMES. Or you can follow me on Facebook at Shelton Hawkins, or you can go to PlanColor.org if you want to make a donation, or if you have a basketball court in your neighborhood that you want to kind of fix up, then holla at your boy. Definitely, man. Again, thank you for taking no, the time man. to do this, man. I truly appreciate it. Um, Special thank you to my special my sponsors, First Gen Fly and Chain Entertainment. And also a special thanks, man, again to Shane Bell for making this interview possible. Brother, I appreciate everything you do and all the plugs you've given me. Thanks everyone for listening and have a great day. <laughs>